This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Wharton Professor Mauro Guillen is the author of the new book, The Platform Paradox, How Digital Businesses Succeed in Ever-Changing Global Marketplace. In the book, Guillen highlights a key incongruity in this new world. Most platforms considered to be successful have triumphed in only some, rather than all, parts of the world. There are very few truly global digital platforms. I'm Brett Logerato, senior editor at Wharton School Press. I sat down with Guillen to talk about his new book. We talked about how the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated digitization and forced companies like Airbnb to pivot and adapt, how platforms like Tinder and Uber have used local advantages to grow rapidly in different countries, and the possibilities and limits to global expansion as illustrated by companies like Zoom and Skype, and much more. Congratulations on the publication of your new book, The Platform Paradox, How Digital Businesses Succeed in an Ever-Changing Global Marketplace. I wanted to start by first asking you to explain the concept of the platform paradox and how digital platforms are changing the rules of competition in the global economy. Well, as you know, digital platforms are all around us, especially after this pandemic. But even before the pandemic, we were using digital platforms to play, to entertain ourselves, to work, to learn, and of course, to shop. So platforms have taken over the global economy. Even established companies have been either setting up a presence on digital platforms or they have created their own digital platforms. And the title of the book, The Platform Paradox, refers to something really important, which is that although the internet is a global medium, Although you can use the internet and get information from all over the world, most digital platforms are actually not global in terms of the scope of their operations. They don't have users everywhere in the world. This may come across as being counterintuitive, but consider platforms such as Uber or platforms such as Facebook. Well, they are very strong in some parts of the world, but in others, there are competing platforms that actually have more market share, more users than they do. So that's the paradox. How come that these platforms are using a global medium, but very few of them have actually a truly global footprint? What, what is an example of a truly global digital platform? Um, it's very hard to produce one. Um, consider, for example, Google. is undeniably the most important search engine in the world. It has about 90% global market share, but it has very little presence in some markets around the world, maybe because local users have little interest in using Google as a search engine, or in some cases, because of government regulations. So for example, Google doesn't operate in China. Now consider other kinds of, um, in principle, very global digital platforms, such as Dropbox or Skype or WhatsApp. They don't have users or large numbers of users in every national market in the world either. So it's extremely rare for a digital platform to actually be, for example, the number one platform in every national market in the world. In fact, if you were to press me, Brett, I don't think I could produce a single example of a digital platform that is undeniably the number one in every national market in the world. And that I find paradoxical, of course. The concept of network effects is 
central in the book. And I was wondering if you could explain the, the many different types of network effects using one of the examples that you provide in the book. So a very basic definition of network effect is that each additional user on a platform makes the platform more valuable to all of the other users on the platform. The classic example is the telephone. The more people who have a telephone, the more people you can communicate with. So the value of the telephone network increases with each additional user. Now, as you said, network effects come in very different shapes and forms. In the book, I highlight two different classifications of network effects that I think are really important. One is whether they are one-sided, like in the case of the telephone, there's only one type of user, or whether they are two-sided, that is to say there are two different types of users, as in most platforms in which there is a buyer and a seller. And then the second really important classification of network effects, especially for addressing the network paradox, is the geographical level at which the network effect takes place. And this can range from the very local level to the national, to the regional, like Europe or Latin America, to the truly global. So network effects are fundamental for us to understand if a digital platform is to grow and be successful in the global economy. So I, I wanted to talk some more about the examples that you cite in the book. And one of the examples is one that has become very common in a lot of people's lives during the pandemic, which is Zoom. Um, how has it surged to you know, compete and lead in a space that as you say in the book, it was once dominated by Skype. Well, Zoom is certainly one of the most uh, amazing success stories over the last uh, 12 months since the beginning of the pandemic. They had a product that was easy to use. If you remember, they also made it available for free at the beginning of the pandemic for groups or um, events um, below a certain number of people. And on top of that, it's extremely intuitive and you can also incorporate other kinds of applications into it. You can easily share, for example, your presentation and so on and so forth. So Zoom really came out of nowhere. 12 months ago, it wasn't widely used. But of course, all of a sudden, we found ourselves in this situation in which nobody could go to school. Nobody could commute to the office. So we needed a platform to be able to learn, to be able to work. And Zoom essentially had the right product at the right time. Another example that you feature prominently and you mentioned is, is Uber, which as you illustrate, it uses local network effects to its regulatory advantage. Um, but it also means that it's been hard for Uber to grow in certain areas. Can you explain that? So Uber is nowadays a two-sided platform. You have drivers and you have users, uh, meaning riders, that also does, as you know, home delivery, right? In which case you also have people who want something delivered to their home on the one hand, and then on the other side of the platform, you have drivers. Now, Uber, by definition, is not a company that benefits from global network effects, not even regional or national. In the case of Uber, the relevant network effects are strictly local. So consider, for example, if you're leaving your home and you want to make it to the railway station, you don't care about how many Ubers are available in some other city in the world. You only care about how many drivers are available to you 
at that moment in your immediate vicinity, perhaps within 10 or 12 city blocks. So the network effects in Uber's case are completely local, which essentially means that Uber has to win the battle in every location in the world. And that's why we see a proliferation of ride-hailing applications. It's not just Lyft here in the United States. You have the market leader in Latin America being Cabify, the market leader in China being Didi. When you go to Southeast Asia, is Grab, and so on and so forth. So in other words, when local network effects predominate, then the outcome in the end could be that different types of platforms are strong or the strongest in different locations in the world. And so Uber, with all of its might, with all of the fame that it has, has been struggling in terms of establishing itself in locations in which another platform, typically a local one, has already gained enough market share to dominate the local network effects. Uh, so, so one of the examples from the book that I was um, you know, fascinated by uh, as a pretty early internet user was um, with Monster.com, which I think was the first big internet job board, so to speak. Um, but you talk about, and, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit more here about how LinkedIn came in and, and took over that space. So Monster.com dominated uh, the early stages of online or digital job services, websites, and platforms. And it was a very intuitive, very straightforward idea. Instead of printing job opportunities and people reading about them in the newspaper, they would actually make them available online. But what Monster.com didn't realize was that people didn't just want to learn about jobs that were available to them. They wanted to be able to use a digital platform about the labor market, about their professional careers, even when they were not planning to find a new job. And that's where LinkedIn comes in. LinkedIn anticipates the crucial importance of social networking. And in the age of social media, they realized that a jobs platform should be so much more than just a digital depository where you can find available jobs. It should be a platform that enables people within the same profession or occupation to network with one another. And sure, employers as well as individuals can advertise jobs, but that is not the only purpose. So LinkedIn essentially had a 360 degree view of what people's needs were when it came to employment, when it came to their professional careers. Whereas Monster.com was only focused on one aspect of that universe of things that people are looking for when they are using a digital platform that has to do with professional careers. So the final example that I wanted to talk about is Lego, which, um, as you mentioned, has been dubbed the Apple of toys. Um, can you discuss how Lego successfully digitized to turn around its fortunes? So Lego is a very, very famous company. Uh, they invented um, bricks as a toy uh, back in the 1950s. And they grew in the 60s and the 70s. But by the 1980s, uh, people were getting tired. Not only that, video games were taking over. 
And they decided then at that point to diversify into theme parks and into other similar ventures. And all of that failed. So they only began to succeed again in the late 1990s and in the early years of this century after they realized that what they needed to do was to create a community of people who would want to use bricks as a way to entertain themselves, as a way to exercise their skills. And in creating that community, that's when they were able to become the apple of toys. How did they do that? They used social media. They persuaded people of all ages, not just children, that they needed to play Lego pretty much every day. So in creating an online community, in essentially using digital tools to tell the, their audience, here comes a new Lego game, here comes a new thing that you have to try out. They created so much hype about what happens to be a very traditional kind of toy to the point that as we speak now, Lego is by far the most successful toy company in the world. Final question. Uh, there are a lot of lessons, obviously, to take away from the book, but if you had to pick one to leave readers with, what would it be? So the main lesson stemming from the platform paradox is that no platform in the world can succeed unless it understands it, the network effects underlying its potential growth. And as I said earlier, what's really important is first to determine whether the digital platform is one-sided or two-sided. And secondly, is to ascertain whether the network effects operate at the local, the national, the regional, or the global level. Because depending on that analysis then, the strategy for international growth of the digital platform can be very, very different. And choosing the wrong strategy, if you misunderstand the nature of the network effects, will in the end only lead to failure. You can find many more examples and insights in the book, The Platform Paradox. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.